In June of 2021, I flew to Seattle for what would be my last in-person interview with Tony and Connor. Our executive producer, Mark McAdam, came with me. Check. Check. Yeah, yeah that's definitely it. Tony and Connor live in a modest apartment complex in Linwood. Nondescript is the word people throw around for places like this. It kind of looks like two motels stacked on top of each other. The landscaping is nice, though. This being the Pacific Northwest, there are big, pretty fir trees all around the property. All right, well, it's been a year since I was here. It was like right about the Has time it been I, that long, yeah, though? Yeah, it was last June, I think. Really? Wow. You guys were in a pretty different place now. Hmm. Were you drinking last June? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, you weren't drinking in front of me. No. Probably not. Definitely not. Weren't, huh? No, we weren't. Tony and Connor had been living together in the apartment for 18 months by this point, minus the month Connor spent in inpatient rehab. That stint was the one that finally stuck. Tony and Connor had been on the straight and narrow ever since. They were six months sober by the time I got to Seattle. Things are going great. Because <laughs> I feel like Finally, it's been man. a roller coaster. It has been a roller coaster, but you know, this, uh, I feel like just even this last month, things are just really starting to come together. Tony and Connor were seated on opposite ends of a couch. Their apartment is nice but small, with white walls, low ceilings, faux wood floors, and a gas fireplace. <laughs> There's a tiny balcony overlooking some bushes where Tony sometimes steps out to hit his vape pen. There are a few store-bought pictures on the wall, plus some family photos on a shelf. The place has a temporary feel, and that's how Tony described it to me on my first visit a year before. Yeah, this is temporary. We're definitely not trying to stay here. I mean, it's a good location because it's close to the freeway and the, you know, the mall and all that stuff, and I have family around here, but really want to get somewhere a little more peaceful. Sounds like you're sleeping on a freeway because the traffic's so loud, the road noise and stuff. This was a long way from that big house on Lake Stevens that Tony built for his family, way back when he was designing airplanes and traveling the world. If you'd asked him back then where he'd be at this stage in his life, this is not a living situation he could possibly have imagined. And he still thinks a lot about the alternate universe version of his life, where he would be today if not for that injury, if he'd never taken OxyContin, if he'd never gotten addicted to it, if he'd never robbed 30 banks, and if he'd just been able to keep that dream job at Boeing. Today, I would be making probably $200,000 a year, I would guess. I'd be making a, a lot of money and have a lot of nice stuff. We would not be sitting in this shitty little apartment right now having this conversation, you know? I mean, my life would be a lot different. There's no doubt about it. This is Hooked, an Apple original podcast produced by Campside Media. And I'm Josh Dean. Yeah, I'm a little wore out. We'll be all right, though. We're getting there. Part 9, our final chapter, Papa Tony. I didn't go to Seattle last summer to put a button on this story, but by the time I was actually there, that's sort of how it felt. For the first time in a long time, since, I don't know, 2007, both Tony and Connor were in a truly good place. Clean, 
sober, and making the right choices. Sounds like it's all part of your, uh, you're trying to get everything back on track. Yeah, one step at a time, man. <laughs> it's a long track. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, yeah, and you, uh, took, you, you, took a long, you took a long detour off that track. Yes, I did. They were cautious, of course, wary of the dangers that lurked, which meant avoiding triggers, avoiding anyone who was actively using, even people they loved. You know, we, we, we did talk about we're never going to allow anybody into our apartment that's actively using any kind of drugs, and we've stuck to that to this day. So <clears throat> we don't have a lot of friends <laughs> as a result, I guess, but it's okay. <laughs> we like it this way. What excited Tony most was Connor, who was working towards stability. In fact, a few weeks before this episode aired, he celebrated three years clean off heroin. I mean, this is the longest I've seen him 100% clean off of everything for as long as I can remember. I mean, since he was probably like 13. <laughs> Anne Marie has been through so many highs and lows with them. She's hopeful, but also realistic. I think they're going to be good, but... You know, Connor, you know, he's he's still kind of young. He just hasn't been living normal in a normal brain for any long extended period of time. So that just makes me a little nervous, you know, and I, I don't know if he's got the right coping skills to deal with stress. And um, he sees a counselor, but not really now because of the COVID. I mean, I, of course, I always worry, you know, I do. That's just how I am. That's why I... I call him every day. <laughs> I just want to talk to him just to make sure everything's good. Because when he's clean, he's, he's, he's so great. One thing helping Connor in this quest to stay clean, finally, is actually another drug, Suboxone. It's one of the main medications used to treat opioid addiction. And it blocks certain receptors in the brain so other opioids can't have an intoxicating effect. You can use heroin or oxy, but you won't feel it. So what's the point? Treatment medications like Suboxone have been shown to lower the risk of fatal overdoses by about half. I think it's been a, it's been a huge blessing. I mean, Suboxone, as long as you're taking it as it's prescribed, it's, uh, I mean, it's a great medication. It can, it can save you. So yeah, it's been good for him, and he's still, still on it today. So. Connor's been on it now since getting out of prison back in 2018. You don't get the cravings, you know, you kind of get this little warm feeling. Plus, like, uh, you, you can't mess up even if you, you know, even if you want to with the Suboxone because of there's, a, the, there's a blocker in it, naloxone, you know, so even if you relapse, your receptors are already blocked up. It's weird. I mean, everybody's different, you know, so it's not going to do the same thing to everybody, but, yeah, it worked for me. It was going so well, in fact, that Connor started to talk to his doctor about tapering down. Slowly, steadily, Connor is rebuilding himself. Earlier this year, he went back to work. He landed a full-time job on a metal fabrication crew, installing everything from metal railings to entire balconies. He's working for an old friend of Tony's who had also had his life upended by opiates. He was happy to help Tony's son get a second chance, too. Connor had to be at his new job bright and early, 6 a.m., so again, Tony was up before sunrise, making him a sandwich for the road. Turkey, tuna, chicken salad, often on a croissant. As long as we're living together, Dad's going to be up making his lunch for him. 
Although I will say yesterday he complained about the pickles that I bought. Apparently I got the, the wrong one. So I'm like, oh, okay, we'll fucking, hey, we'll fix that. Yeah, you got any more complaints, just, just fill out the form. <laughs> but Tony also had other things on his mind besides sandwiches and sobriety. He was still waiting for a decision on the lawsuit of opioid victims he joined. And the case against Purdue was heating up on the national stage. Coincidentally, on our first day of reporting in Seattle, Congress was holding a hearing on the other side of the country about the Sackler family's role in the opioid crisis. At issue was a bankruptcy law loophole that, if not closed, would allow the Sackler family to avoid liability, meaning less of a potential payout for victims. One of the people who testified at the hearing was a journalist named Patrick Radden Keefe. He wrote the definitive book about the Sacklers, called Empire of Pain, and his testimony pulled no punches. I knew I had to show Tony. So this is a, this just came up today. So that book I've been reading, Empire Pain. Yep. This is the guy who wrote it. I figured we could watch it. Oh, yeah. It's only six minutes. I was curious what he said. Regular order, the committee will come to order. The gentleman has been recognized. I now recognize Mr. Keefe. Thank you, Chairwoman Maloney, Ranking Member Comer, distinguished members of the committee. Thank you for inviting me to participate. My name is Patrick Radden Keefe. I'm a journalist with The New Yorker magazine, though I'm speaking here today in my personal capacity. I've been investigating the Sacklers and their company since 2017. In April, I published a book which tells the story of how the family profited from the opioid crisis. The Sacklers were intimately involved in the rollout of OxyContin. When people started to overdose, another company or another family might have changed course after learning that the product they sold was killing people not the Sacklers. So please, think about the vast number of American families whose lives have been upended, and then this one billionaire family that is looking to game the system and get away with it once and for all, and ask yourselves, whose side am I on? Thank you, I look forward to your questions. That was outstanding. The gentleman yells back. Gee, talk about putting them in a, ask yourself, whose side are you on? So what is he, what's the objective here, what is? So I think the law would basically say, like, you can come after their money. Well, especially they, if they can prove you've looted the company right. of all their assets, basically. And then, and then, and then go, oh, fuck, whoa, oh, 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 by right. the way, we're broke. Yeah, no, no, no. Yeah, but the, what, That's, think, that is crazy. Right. Like the, They're just a bunch of, you know, uh, fucking dirtbags. For a long time, Tony had hoped, even expected, to get a big settlement check from the lawsuit he joined along with many other victims of the opioid epidemic. But it was increasingly clear to him that this was unlikely to happen. So people like me are not gonna get justice. That's becoming crystal clear to me. We're gonna end up with, I mean, nothing even remotely close to um, make up for the damage, I mean, and the financial loss that we've suffered through our addiction, you know? So financially, it's a slap in the face. It's just another example to me of the rich get richer and, and the, the little guys are just getting fucked. <laughs> That's what it is. So yeah, I mean, it's not just about the money, in my case, that I lost from losing my career, but it's other stuff that it's hard to put a value, you'll value on, you know? Relationships, time with your family, how much your family suffered. I mean, look at what my mom went through just uh, how much she suffered because of my addiction. And yeah, I mean, it's just been an absolute mess. 
The opioid crisis in some way had touched the entire web of Tony's immediate family. And the more I worked on this story, the more I stumbled into the problem throughout Tony's community. There was the high school friend of Tony's whose partner had been prescribed pain meds after back surgery, beginning a long slide into addiction that nearly cost him his family. There was the former coworker from Boeing who says his wife intentionally hurt herself to gain access to painkillers, and how after years and years of this, she lost the will to live. There was the guy at Connor's job who had, like Tony, ended up in prison because of his struggles with opiates. And at one point, that guy's wife was hooked too. This has always been part of the appeal of Tony's story to me. It was exceptional in so many ways, but also so incredibly common in others. It's something that Tony's defense attorney, Zach Franz, has seen firsthand. For every, you know, one Mr. Hathaway who gets involved in something like this that grabs additional attention, I mean, there's just, there's thousands of folks with similar stories who are um, facing much, you know, less serious charges or just or different charges, and, and their stories are, are not getting told. By last summer, courts were barreling down on opioid manufacturers, especially Purdue. In a litigation so monumental, many have compared it to the landmark Big Tobacco settlement. That clip you heard earlier of Patrick Radden Keefe was connected to a critical decision that would soon be made by the Second Circuit Court in New York, where a judge was overseeing the fate of various civil cases against Purdue and the Sacklers. Keefe summed up the stakes like this. What they're hoping is that this one bankruptcy judge in New York, who was handpicked by Purdue, will grant them sweeping immunity from any and all civil lawsuits related to the crisis. And they're ready to sacrifice the company to do it, protect the family at all costs. What they're asking for and what they're poised to get is one final expensive license for criminal misconduct. However this matter is settled, most victims are not going to get paid. What victims can and do expect is some measure of justice. And on September 1st, 2021, the judge made a ruling. The Sacklers were ordered to pay a huge fine more than $4.3 billion, money that will mostly go to opioid addiction treatment and prevention programs. In return, they would be shielded from all future opioid-related claims. Unless something thwarts that settlement, the family members most involved in Purdue will walk away with no prison time, without even being charged, all while keeping most of their fortune, estimated at $11 billion. Some of the Sacklers have apologized, technically. Missing from those apologies is any real impression that the family owns this mess, which leaves it all feeling a bit hollow. During recent testimony, Richard Sackler, who served as the president of Purdue through much of the crisis, was repeatedly asked whether he, his family, or the company bear any responsibility for America's opioid crisis. His one-word answer was the same each time. No. At least he seemed to mean that. Purdue Pharma as a company, however, is to be dissolved. A new company will rise up to replace it. And while it won't involve the Sacklers, it looks like its drug offerings will still include OxyContin. Oxy is still one of the top-selling painkillers in the United States. Some public figures praise the conditions of the settlement. Here's New York Attorney General Letitia James. This deal gets one of the nation's most harmful drug dealers out of the opioid business. While other lawmakers feel the punishment doesn't go far enough, nine states objected to the settlement, including Washington. That state's attorney general, Bob Ferguson, called the plan morally and legally bankrupt. There's a number of reasons why I'm opposed to settlement. Number one, it allows the Sackler family to walk away as billionaires, despite the harm that they've done. Number two, there's no accountability 
for the harm that's been done. There's no day in court. And number three, they don't even need to issue an apology for the harm that they've done. So on multiple counts, to me, it seems like it's the wrong course of action. When all the dust settles, an estimated 90% of the money will go to states, local governments, and tribes. But the outlook for individual plaintiffs looks less than promising. More than 130,000 people filed claims, but some will get very little. I think there's four tiers, 48,000 being the highest, and the lowest end is 3,500. I mean, what? $3,500? What's that going to do for anybody? Nothing. Based on everything I've read, I qualify for the, the tier one, the 48,000. But it just doesn't seem fair to me that I would get the same settlement as somebody that lost a child or a loved one, you know? Whatever amount Tony ends up getting, it's likely he'll still end up in debt because he says he currently owes more than $100,000 in restitution for his crimes. He tells me that he fully intends to clear that debt because he sure doesn't want his kids to end up getting stuck with it. Either way, Tony is still grappling with where his responsibility ends and Purdue's or the government's begins. Man, it's, it's a motherfucker. Drug addiction, you know, people tend to blame everybody else but themselves. I mean, I do the same thing. I blame Purdue Pharma, <laughs> right? <laughs> I, I mean, uh, I would have never became addicted to heroin if I didn't become addicted to Oxycontin, which was legitimately prescribed to me. So, I mean, I, I feel like I have some right to point the finger at someone else, but still at the end of the day, I mean, we're all responsible for us. What you know, what you right. do is your choice, and what I do is my choice, and we have to hold ourselves accountable and not be trying to blame everybody else. <laughs> That's yeah. pretty much it. <laughs> I mean, at the end of the day, Robin Banks was a choice. I made that decision, and I've been I've been held accountable for it, so I got to deal with it. There was one villain from Tony's story who got punished. Dr. Delbert Whetstone, the osteopath who prescribed Tony all those Oxy-80s at his pill mill. Correction, pain management clinic. Whetstone was sentenced to three years in federal prison for illegally prescribing Oxycontin and tax evasion. Upon searching his home, federal agents seized hundreds of thousands of dollars in cash that he had never declared on his tax return. I don't remember the exact numbers, but it is ridiculous the amount of pills that he prescribed. Here are the exact numbers. In a single 10-month period, Dr. Whetstone wrote prescriptions for nearly 88,000 tablets of Oxy, according to the DEA investigation. And for comparison, that's six times the number of prescriptions doled out in the same time period by an entire local hospital. Here's how the government summed it up in a sentencing memo. The amount of drugs involved here simply is staggering. The precise human toll of all those thousands and thousands of powerful narcotics released to the street thanks to the defendant, of course, can never be known, but surely is horrific. Speaking of Whetstone, I also came upon a very telling detail in a legal complaint against Purdue Pharma by the Washington AG's office. It quotes a report from a Purdue sales rep who wrote in 2008 that Dr. Whetstone's patients are all, quote, 20-year-old thugs with diamonds in their ears and $350 tennis shoes who always pay cash. Yikes. This is pretty telling. For starters, this Purdue rep, whoever it was, seems like kind of an asshole. Beyond that, and maybe more importantly, whoever wrote this clearly knows that Whetstone was up to some bullshit. 
20-year-olds paying cash are not the clients you'd find occupying the lobby of a legit pain management clinic. Giant flashing red light there. And, in fact, Purdue did poke around in Whetstone's practice in the wake of that Rep's 2008 report. It found that, what do you know, he was overprescribing Oxy all along. Purdue even reported him to the DEA three years later. Anyway, it seems like Tony isn't going to get redemption through the legal system or from a check. But doing this podcast, it turns out, has given him some degree of closure. Our producer, Elizabeth Van Brocklin, asked him at one point why he wanted to do this project, with me specifically, despite getting requests from other journalists. Tony says that his initial motivation to do this podcast was revenge on Purdue. I felt like everybody else that was hitting me up, all they wanted to talk about was Robin Banks and, you know, glorify that, which is not what I was really interested in doing. You know, I wanted to really hammer on the whole opioid epidemic and use my experience to hopefully um, make a difference for somebody. I don't know. And I want revenge, you know. I want, <laughs> I want revenge against Purdue Pharma. Like, they, they destroyed my life. And um, I just felt like, yeah, Josh, Josh was just, you know, going to help me achieve that goal. But over the months and then years, it became about something more than revenge. I was someone Tony could rely on, a person who called him constantly, giving him a bit of purpose during the bleak days of the pandemic. I think no matter your situation, it's always good to have somebody to talk to, you know, a good friend, somebody that, you know, kind of gets you and understands what you're going through. And for me, Josh has been that guy. When something like good happens, do you think I want to tell Josh? Yeah, I share pretty much everything with him. <laughs> Like, we're kind of on that level. He knows all about my family, and, you know, he knows about the struggles that I've faced since getting released. So it's cool to have somebody like that in your corner, you know? Does it feel like therapy at all? It, I find it therapeutic, for sure. <laughs> there actually is some science that suggests telling your story can be therapeutic. But something else surprising came out of this podcast. At points along the way, Tony's had to confront aspects of himself and his decisions he might have otherwise left unexamined. Like, earlier in the reporting process, Tony would lament one particular victim, the guy whose truck he stole back before the first robbery. Well, that guy right there is number one. <laughs> you know, I took his truck, and that's fucked up. That guy, whoever he is, is the one specific victim Tony felt like he'd harmed through his bank robberies. But something interesting happened once the episodes of this show started to air. Tony's lens began to widen. He texted me after hearing episode one. I was a bit taken aback when I heard the interview with the bank teller, he wrote. I had no idea what I did had that much of an impact on other people. As the episodes continued to come out, he could hear clearly how he traumatized some of the tellers. I think really just actually hearing it come from somebody else, you know, from one of the bank tellers, talking about her experience and how she was terrified, you know, and it scared her and it's something that kind of sticks with them. It really got me thinking about, wow, I did this like 30 times. And, you know, when you go into a bank, it's not just that one teller, right? Because there's oftentimes, you know, you have the bank manager and there might be a couple other tellers and it's really affecting everybody that's in there. So, I mean, it, again, you know, it, it just touches me. It makes me feel uh, it makes me feel terrible about what I did. I think she made a comment like she said, boy, I, I'd sure like to punch that guy in the face. And uh, I don't know. I mean, I thought to myself, well, you know, if punching me in the face is going to uh, help her heal, then uh, 
you know, that's probably something we could make arrangements for. I, I probably, if nothing else, deserve to be punched in the face by all of them. Um, but uh, in all seriousness, it's, I mean, it's, it, I think it's good for me to hear their feedback and understand where they're coming from and how it affected them. And I just hope that uh, I get myself in a position where I can make amends. This was a part of the process Tony hadn't expected. The fact that we were still talking and building the show, even as the episodes aired, created this opportunity for reflection that neither of us ever anticipated. People from Tony's story were reacting, too. Shortly after some of the early episodes aired, we heard from a teller from one of the 30 banks Tony robbed during his spree. She obviously had very bad memories of him and was traumatized by the robbery. But now, having heard Tony's story, she had a different understanding of the man who'd scared the shit out of her. Because she understood what he'd been through. Her partner had been there himself. Same thing, she wrote. Hurt his back, was prescribed oxy, was cut off because his doctor got busted. Which as a result made him turn to heroin. He's actually part of that class action lawsuit against Purdue Pharma. He listened to the podcast with me and can totally relate to everything Tony has said. When this whole thing settles, they're still going to be billionaires. And that should not be allowed to happen. Over a half a million people have died in our country because of the drug that they pushed out onto the streets. Those 500,000 deaths Tony's referring to, that's counting all opioids, not just oxy. But still, think about it. Half a million Americans lost to ODs. And Tony's one of the lucky ones, still alive to tell his story. In more than two decades of interviewing people and writing about them for a living, I've never talked to a subject this often for this long. In that sense, I've never gotten closer to a story, which, I guess, makes objectivity impossible for me here. I can't not want this story to turn out well for Tony and Connor and the rest of their family. For over three years now, Tony's been telling me his story, and I've been writing it down. But at the risk of using cliches, and I'm sorry, I'm just going to, it's time for him to write the next chapter. What will that chapter hold? You know, when you go to prison, man, and you spend a lot of time sitting in the cell alone, uh, it's amazing what you learn about yourself. You know, how much time you have to just sit there and reflect on where you've been, what you've been through. And, you know, you obviously think a lot about your family. And, and at some point, you got to make a decision. Either you're going to just dwell in that hellhole or you got to start looking forward knowing that you do have a release date and you're going to have an opportunity to make amends for some of the terrible shit you've done. So that's kind of the path I chose. And, uh, you know, to this day, that's, I, that's really my focus. You've heard me talk about Tony's optimism before. It's a defining trait and will be a critical thing for him to hang on to as he finds his way in the world as a 52-year-old felon with the specter of addiction snarling in his rear view. I asked him where that optimism comes from. I tried to stay positive, and it, it, maybe it is a defense mechanism in some respects, but I think for the most part, it's just that's the way I, I am. You know, I just I want to be positive. I want other people to feel that. I want my son to feel that, you know, to keep him motivated. And look how, you know, he's doing amazing today. I'm so proud of him. And, um... I'd like to think I have something to do with that, you know. He wants to see me do good as well, you know. And if I'm not doing good, then it's going to be harder for him to focus on himself and doing what he needs to be doing. So 
I think we both kind of feel that way. But what does doing good mean for Tony exactly? It's hard to pin him down on what he hopes to do with himself as a future career. Honestly, I'll do anything within reason, you know, to, um, to just stay busy and get out and start moving more and make a little money. One idea I've had is that Tony could go back to what he used to do, engineering. Man, all I got to do is get the interview. I'll do good in an interview, so I, I know I need that opportunity to sit down with somebody and, and just put myself out there, you know, say, man, just give me a chance. You won't be disappointed. I'm a, I'm a good worker. I'm dependable. A few times, he mentioned maybe going into business with Connor. I told him we should buy a house. That's what I said. We should buy a house and fix it up and then sell it. Flipping houses, the HGTV dream. Yeah, that's basically my idea. Then, later in the summer, Tony did pick up some part-time work. His grandson, Anthony, moved in. Papa Tony's daycare. <laughs> Hi, you have any availability? <laughs> oh, I absolutely do. In fact, I have uh, several openings. <laughs> that's right. Five days a week while Connor was at work, until school started in the fall, Tony babysat his grandson. He's just got me running ragged. Papa Tony, he calls me Papa T now. Somehow he decided to shorten it up. Papa T, let's play some uh, Candyland. Papa T, pillow fight. Papa T, I challenge you to a, a Kato battle. These little action figures he had. I mean, it's just all day, man. It's great. You know, we go to the park and been out hunting blackberries and uh, just it's just been awesome. Tony was so proud, so excited, that he and Connor recorded one of their pillow fights and sent it to me. Choose your weapon. Pillow. White pillow. Oh, you're using that one? Hang on a second. Let me get mine ready. Wait, I have to get mine ready, too. You can't take my pillow. Oh, hang on a minute. I didn't say start. Back up. Ah. It doesn't matter. You think I'm playing? Yeah. Oh, headshot. Uh-oh, that might be a knockout. Oh, the ribs. Oh, I think you broke a rib. Those are illegal. I thought we said those were illegal. No one thing brought Tony more joy than this time with Anthony, his namesake grandson. This adorable boy, just a fountain of energy, was a daily reminder that there was plenty to live for, that they all had another chance. Which is maybe exactly what Tony and Connor need. He reminds everybody of the Hathaway boys. <laughs> In what way? He just is. He's really smart and he's yeah, he's quick and he's funny. He's going to be a handful. Speaking of grandkids, there was one other bright spot in this otherwise difficult period. Back in February, his daughter Madison gave birth to a little girl. It's awesome, man. Jeez, I love being a grandpa. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's just great. Tony was smitten. Yeah. I guess in that respect, I'm one of the lucky ones, man. I'm blessed to have my family and, you know, experience my 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 grandkids and, and all these wonderful things, so I'm grateful for all that. Madison lives in Idaho now with her husband, and Tony spoke fondly of that Mountain West state even before he'd seen it. He just knew he'd love it. And Madison was also in his ear about a radical idea. She, she loves it there. She keeps trying to get me to move down there, which I can't do right now, but, I, you know, I would like, man, I could use the change. A few months later, Tony flew to Idaho to see for himself, and he did indeed love the place. Man, I would, I'd pack a U-Haul tomorrow if I, could, uh, if I could get away right now. I'd love it. It was 
I went out every day, um, you know, and would just, I mean, the weather was just beautiful. It was blue sky the whole time I was there. I was out taking walks every day, just walking around the, the town of Rexburg and just chatting it up with people, man. Everyone's so nice. It's like, there's no crime. I never heard one siren the whole time I was there. It's unbelievable. It's like a whole different planet from where we're living. I mean, here, man, we got cops flying by our apartment every hour. I mean, there's there's so much crime here, man. It's, it's just terrible. It's gotten so bad. I pointed out the irony of what he was telling me. I mean, you yourself robbed 30 banks here. Uh, yes, that's true. <laughs> I was part of it. Certainly part of the problem in, in a very big way. <clears throat> I, I just... Uh, I don't want to be part of it anymore, man. I'm, I'm trying to change my life, and I'm not a criminal anymore. He's not a criminal anymore. And while they say you're always an addict, I'm not really worried about relapses either. After all we've been through together, we are, I think, leaving them in a truly good place. Still, this apartment, this arrangement, was supposed to be temporary. By design. It was a way for Tony and Connor both to reset their lives safely together. And it gave Tony real purpose. His job, more or less, has been attending to Connor, making him breakfast, packing lunch, helping him with legal stuff, and babysitting, so that Connor can focus on work, structure that he needs more than Tony does. But what about Tony? Idaho seems to represent a clean slate, a new start a place that isn't loaded with bad memories. At the same time, it would be awfully far from one important thing. Connor. For all the habits Tony's kicked, all the addictions and dependencies he's found his way around, he still has trouble with the idea of cutting the cord, letting go. Even if he knows, at his core, that he has to. It's the only way that either of them truly moves on. Tony has felt for so long that Connor needs him. It's been almost a singular focus. He felt, he just knew, that he was the key to saving his son. But here's what I think. Connor's going to be fine. And Tony will be too. He just can't see it yet. Man, I love my boys so much and we're so close. It'd be hard for me to go without him. I, gotta, I, I mean, I got to be honest. But I mean, at some point, if he's stable and doing good 100% and, uh, you know, then it's maybe, I don't know. I'd have a hard time leaving him. Hooked has been an Apple original podcast produced by Campside Media. The executive producers are Mark McAdam and me, Josh Dean. Our producer is Elizabeth Van Brocklin. Our story editor is Michelle Lands. And Sierra Franco is the associate producer. Fact-checking on this episode by Will Peichel. Additional reporting and research by Callie Hitchcock. Original music by Mark McAdam and Doug Slaywin. Editorial support from Doug Slaywin, Aaliyah Papes, and Allison Haney. The executive producers at Campside Media are Vanessa Gregoriadis, Adam Hoff, Matt Scher, and me, Josh Dean. Special thanks to everyone at Apple TV Plus and Apple Podcasts, and to all our friends at Sister, especially Liz, Stacy, and Jane.
Finally, a very special thanks to Tony Hathaway and his family for opening up their lives to tell this difficult story to me and all of you. My hope is that if you or someone you know is struggling with addiction, this story shows you that you're not alone and there's hope and help out there. Don't hesitate to ask. Thanks so much for listening. 